there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to Time for Coffee. I am so excited and honored that you press play. And you're going to be really excited too when you learn more about my next guest. Because if you love books and reading, whether nonfiction or fiction or maybe both, and the idea of editing manuscripts from gifted authors sounds amazing to you and getting to work with them on their books. And even if it hasn't yet, after listening to Jonathan Karp talk about his job at the Simon & Schuster Publishing House, you may decide this is the career for you. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my fascinating next guest is Jonathan Karp, the president and publisher of Simon & Schuster Adult Publishing. Jonathan joined Simon & Schuster in 2010, and today he is responsible for the editorial and publishing activities of the Simon & Schuster Adult Publishing. Jonathan was previously publisher and editor-in-chief of 12, an imprint of the Hatchet Book Group, and editor-in-chief of Random House, where he actually began his publishing career in 1989 as an editorial assistant and worked there for 16 years. Under Jonathan's leadership at Simon & Schuster, they have published books by luminaries like historian Doris Kearns Goodwin and David McCullough, self-help motivational guru Tony Robbins, journalist Bob Woodward, and megastars like the musician Bruce Springsteen and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, among many, many other authors. Jonathan, Welcome to Time for Coffee. I know you're not caffeinated, but are you ready to go? I am ready to go. Awesome. So I actually would love to hear you get into some of the many hats that you are wearing right now at Simon & Schuster. Can you kind of walk us through the wardrobe and a typical day in the life of Jonathan Karp? Well, I would like to tell you that I begin with a triathlon and (laughs) then have Wolfgang Puck over for lunch. But it's actually a lot of meetings and email right now. And it's usually one meeting after another and a lot of email in between. It it is a classic office job. I'm sitting here on the 14th floor in Rock Center. I'm overlooking the ice skating rink. I'm across the street from NBC, Midtown Manhattan. Somebody came in here the other day and said, this is a lot like what I imagined Mad Men was like. I don't think that was far off. Got it. So Jonathan, in between all of those emails, or maybe I should say the content of those emails, who are you communicating with and what is it about? Well, so my job is right now to manage a lot of the publishing. So I'm dealing with editors, publicity directors, marketing executives, literary agents, people who are either trying to sell us books or people who are working on bringing those books to market. And it's my job to make sure that we choose the best books and that we publish them as well as we possibly can so that all the people who are listening to your show uh, find out about them. That's great to know. It makes me think, I mean, at least the image that comes to mind, Jonathan, is that this is very much a team sport. And as publisher, you're kind of like the coach 
who's making sure that all his players are working together collaboratively in order to move books from acquisition, presumably to the bestseller list? That would be the platonic ideal. And I will happily agree to that description of it. It sometimes feels a little bit more haphazard than that, a little bit more ad hoc. But the good part about it is that you come in every morning and you're really thinking about what you can do to make people aware of the books and also to get behind the right ones. It's an exciting job in the sense that we can publish anything. And a lot of people would like to write books. And there are obviously more people who want to write books than there are people who have time to read them. (laughs) So it's our job to really be as much of a filter or a curator or a cultural gatekeeper, however you want to think about it. It's a responsibility we take seriously. We have a lot of passion for it. And it's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to get to decide what goes out there. And then it's really very challenging to figure out how to make people pay attention to it, even when you're sure it deserves a lot of attention. It's still hard to get people's attention. Because people are busy and they're distracted and there's a lot of stuff on Netflix. And so how do we compete with all that? That's what we we wind up spending our time thinking about. Jonathan, in the introduction, I said that you are the president and publisher of Simon & Schuster's adult publishing. But I can imagine that there are some listeners who think there's only one publisher at a publishing house like Simon & Schuster. Can you share with our young listeners how many different publishers there are and why there are these verticals within a publishing house like Simon & Schuster? I'd be happy to. The reason why publishing companies are, they're broken up into a lot of small groups because it's impossible to read everything. So what you want to do is you want to get a core team behind every book. And that's easier to do if the company is broken down into divisions and then imprints. And they have lots of different names. So there's a publisher of Scribner and a publisher of Atri and a publisher of Gallery. And editors, as they become more advanced, they some of them become publishers in their own right. And really, every editor is, to some degree, also a publisher. So... There is sometimes more supervision, sometimes more management. Some people operate in their own little silos. But the end result is that you always have a bunch of advocates for a specific book. And we think we get better result that way because when you have people who really believe in it and have really read the material and thought a lot about how to put it across to the public, how to best describe it, how to proselytize on behalf of it, you're more likely to connect with the larger readership out there. If you had everybody working on everything, it would be much more shallow and maybe a little bit less personally satisfying because you could never really go deep and really get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you said that some editors are also publishers, what did you mean by that? What's the distinction? Well, the distinction can sometimes be a little hard to understand on the outside. Basically, the book often begins with the editor. So when a literary agent or a writer sends something into a publishing house, the editor is the first person to read it. And the editor is the one who goes to other people and says, I think we should publish this. Now, some of those editors after doing it for a number of years and really getting a lot of experience and an understanding of the marketplace and also a better understanding of how the publishing house works, those editors don't need a lot of supervision or a lot of management, and they just wind up running their own thing. 
So we have some very senior editors who basically, whenever they want to buy something or publish something, they have the latitude to do that. But that takes a lot of time and a lot of experience before you can usually do that. I was an editor for about 16 years before I really had that kind of latitude. So that's what I mean. But every editor really is, though, the publisher of his or her own books. And a typical editor may acquire anywhere from 8 to 20 books in a year. And so those books start with the editor. And then it fans out and other people become integral to the process. Every book needs a really good publicist. There are assistants who help shepherd the book through the production process. There are copy editors. There are designers. There are, of course, people in sales and marketing to get the book into bookstores and to make people at the consumer level aware of it. There are a lot of different people involved in the books, and they're all essential to the success. It really is a collaborative business. It does usually, however, begin with that first submission to the editor. So as you said, Jonathan, you spent much of your earlier career as an editor, and you have a wonderful reputation for picking authors whose books have ended up selling incredibly well and often to tremendous critical acclaim. Can you break down for us what your considerations are in making an acquisition? And by that, I mean the decision to sign on a particular author and pay them a bonus or some kind of an advance to write a book. And perhaps you could use Seabiscuit as an example. That was the first book by author Laura Hillenbrand. Yes. And what a wonderful book it is. So that case with Seabiscuit, I was having lunch with a literary agent who I greatly admire. Her name is Tina Bennett, and she's one of the very best literary agents at work today. She also represents Malcolm Gladwell, and she presented Hillbilly Elegy and a number of other really successful books. Anyway, she asked me at lunch, have you ever heard of Seabiscuit? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, well, did you know that in the late 1930s, more was written about Seabiscuit than either Hitler or Mussolini or FDR? And I said, well, no, I certainly didn't know that. And she said, well, would you like to read the proposal? And my first instinct was, no, I really don't want to read about this racehorse. I'm not interested in horse racing. I've never been to the races. But when I kept thinking about that comment about how more was written about this horse than Hitler or Mussolini or FDR, I thought, well, gee, that really is kind of fascinating. So I asked her to send me the book proposal. I read it. It was interesting. The thing about it that I liked was that the horse, against all odds, kept winning. And it had a really strong dramatic structure. You could see at first the horse was not expected to even be competitive. The horse was kind of neurotic, which I could sort of relate to on a personal <laughs> level. And so then when the horse began to race, he just began to win and then countered an injury and, and then came back and won again. It had a really great storyline. And also the people around Seabiscuit were also a little bit like Seabiscuit in that they each were missing a little bit of something. The jockey had a really bad leg. The owner had had some tragedy in his life. And the trainer was kind of this elliptical, mysterious guy. So there was a good cast of characters. We bought it off of a book proposal, which meant that there were only about 30 pages. It was her first book. And it was really just sort of a leap of faith based on something that we thought was interesting. She went away for a couple of years. I talked to her a few times in the process of her writing the book. I went to visit her once. And it came in. The full manuscript came in, which is rare. Usually, writers send you installments and you read it while you're going along. But in this case, Laura waited until the very end. I think I read part of it 
but not very much of it at first. I think I read an outline, I remember, and I read part of the manuscript. But basically, when she turned in the full manuscript, it was presented to me as, this is the whole thing. And I read it over a weekend. And it was at that point in my career, it was the single best reading experience I'd ever had with a manuscript. And I have the editorial memo that I wrote after that weekend. I said, this is the best manuscript I've ever read. It was a pure gut reaction. It wasn't something that I really intellectualized a lot. I just loved the book. And the book had that same effect on just about everybody at Random House who I showed it to. When we went to our sales conference to introduce the book to the sales force formally, a lot of them had read it before the meeting. We were all meeting together, I think, in some hotel room somewhere in suburban New York. And one of the sales reps, I think a guy from Maine, he raised his hand and said, we're going to sell a million copies of this book. And he was actually wrong. We sold over 2 million copies of it. And it's very rare for people to react that way. I mean, obviously, I never responded that way. The sales rep from Maine, I'd never heard him say anything like that. So the book just had an influence on people that had everything to do with the way Laura wrote it, the humanity and emotion that she infused into the manuscript. It's a story I love to tell because it was transformative for a lot of people. Obviously, it transformed Laura's life. It transformed my career. And it also taught me some lasting lessons about why certain books break out and others don't. And I think up to that point, I'd done some successful nonfiction books, but I'd never done anything that really moved people that way. And I think that what I learned from the experience of Seabiscuit was that it's not enough just to be smart in a book. You have to make people feel something. And that's what Seabiscuit did. And that's why it's still to this day, the book that really sort of encapsulates so much of what I love about book publishing and what I've learned from it. What a great story, Jonathan. What else have you learned over the years about what it takes to be an excellent editor? And and what are all the moving pieces that are involved in actually editing a book? That's a great question. I think that there are a lot of qualities that I value in editors. I think, first of all, creativity. I think an ability to come up with ideas. I think that a lot of people think that editors wait for the submission to come. They wait for the book to be sent to them. And actually, I think the really great editors are out there and they're either trying to come up with ideas or they're trying to meet writers. Even if you're editing fiction, you might write a fan letter to an author and wind up working with that writer. I think creativity, I think being able to articulate what it is that's special about a book or meaningful about a book really, really matters. The editor is the first advocate for the author. Think about it. If the first person who's reading the book doesn't make a good case for the book, it's possible that nobody else in the publishing house is really going to take any time to read it. We have launch meetings within Simon & Schuster, and the editors get up in front of a group of people, and they tell all the people in sales and publicity and marketing why they love the book. And if they describe the book in a way that compels people, then a lot of other people are likely to read it. If they're boring or if they're ineffectual or if they don't make the case, then it's possible that that book won't really get the reading until critics or book reviewers or people in the media begin to write about it. And so you're already at a disadvantage if you haven't gotten that from within the company. So I think that eloquence, passion, ability to communicate. And then finally, of course, there's the whole aspect of working with the writer. So you've got to be able to read a manuscript or a book proposal and first of all, see what's there that needs improvement. 
And then just as importantly, and perhaps even more of a challenge, is to see what's not there and ask the writer to explore dimensions that perhaps he or she didn't already consider. And that can be a really interesting part of the job, but you've got to have the right sensibility and mentality to do that. You've got to be on the same wavelength as the writer. You've got to be able to ask for realistic things. Then you've got to have the right way of asking for it. I would imagine, Jonathan, and this is probably more the case with nonfiction than fiction, but you might need to become a bit of a subject matter expert or at least educate yourself more on the topic that the author is writing on in order to be able to see some of those missing pieces? Or is that not the case? That's a good question, too. And I think that sometimes you do have to educate yourself and read other books in the category. I think that I've certainly done that. And I think a lot of really assiduous and good editors do that. There's Another case to be made, which is that you should be a generalist and you should be asking what the average person would ask. And you could also argue that it's up to the author to make sure that they really know what it is that he or she is writing about. So when I've edited books, I've tried to be aware of what's generally known about a subject, but I can't get a PhD in everything I edit. So I do have to put a lot of faith in the author. And actually, contractually, the author is warranting that his or her work is accurate and is original. There is that onus on the author. Absolutely. Jonathan, in one interview that you gave, you said that you have actually been more successful with nonfiction than fiction, and you think that's because you're a guy. Can you explain that to our listeners, some of whom are young men who may be thinking about getting into editing? Why do you think it's easier for a woman to edit fiction than for a man to do so? Well, I think it might be easier to succeed commercially if you're a woman, just because more of the people buying books are women. So my comment was made on the assumption that women understand what women want better than men understand what women want. And I realized that that is an assumption that goes back to Freud. And I'm not going to stand by that forever. I think that these things are highly subject to your own opinion. And there are some very successful men who edit books that a lot of women read. But by and large, a lot of the fiction that is published today is edited by women. I mean, if you were to do a statistical analysis of the number of books that are published and sold and bought, you would find that much more than 50% and maybe even more than 60% are bought by and for women. Isn't that interesting? And is it more on the fiction side than nonfiction or is it both? No, I was speaking about fiction. Okay, got it. Jonathan, I'd love to flash back, if we could, about 30 years to when you were starting out in the publishing industry. And I know that you spent a few years as a newspaper reporter before you decided to move into publishing. And I'd like to ask you about your time working at the very bottom of the totem pole as an assistant to a very well-known editor at Random House, Kate Medina. And you worked for her for about three years, doing what would to an outsider appear to be kind of mundane tasks like 
typing up memos and letters that she dictated to you and taking notes in meetings and overhearing Kate speak on the phone with agents and authors. Can you share what influence these seemingly mindless or wrote responsibilities and interactions had on you as a young person in the industry? They were formative experiences and they were immensely valuable. They changed the trajectory of my life. And I will be forever grateful to Kate Medina for hiring me, for teaching me, for being a mentor. She's an extraordinary editor in her own right. And by giving me the privilege to sit outside her door and watch her do her job, I learned how to do it on my own. And I never would have had that confidence or that ability if I hadn't seen her doing it. I did take dictation. She would leave tapes of her editorial memos and I would have to type them up. And by doing that, I learned how a really experienced editor thinks, how an editor tackles a manuscript, breaks it down page by page, line by line. I saw her doing her job. And by having her voice in my head as, as I was typing her memos, I was also able to understand the way she thought about fiction and nonfiction, the way she communicated with writers, the way she was able to get the result that she felt was in the best interest of the book. It was immensely valuable. I can't imagine a better way to learn. So as I said, I'm grateful to her forever. In our Espresso Shots interview, which will air separately from this one, you mentioned that this is an industry of apprenticeship. And you impressed upon me just by the way that you went out and interviewed for several jobs at different publishing houses, how valuable these entry-level jobs can be because of who you report to and what you learn on the job. What advice do you have for our young listeners who want to break into publishing? What should they be doing as they evaluate where they're going to work, and who they will work for? Well, so when I was applying for the entry-level job at Random House, I did interview at several other places. And I was about 25 at the time, and I worked for a couple of years for newspapers and journalism. So I was experienced enough so that I was probably going to get hired. And I was in an advantageous position in that regard. I hired my own boss in a way. That's sort of how I felt. And that was something that Kate felt about her boss at the time, too, that she hired her boss. And I always sort of thought that that was a really powering way to think about going into an entry-level job, that you're actually picking the person you want to work with because you're going to be counting on that person to advance your own career. And in Kate, I had somebody who I knew would be an advocate for me. And the reason I actually liked her position more than the others that I interviewed for was because I loved the books on her shelf. And one of the books that she had edited was a book called Loose Change by a writer named Sarah Davidson. It was one of my mom's favorite books, and I'd happened to read it myself. And it was a book that I actually learned a lot from. It's an extraordinarily intimate account of the lives of women in the late 1960s dealing with divorce and abortion and career issues. And so the fact that I saw that on Kate's shelf, it was a gut impulse decision that I thought, okay, this is somebody who's doing work that I'm really interested in. She was working with the New York Times reporter at the time. She's actually editing Nancy Reagan's memoir. She was working very late. I remember that our first interview was that I got called for it at like seven o'clock at night. And that excited me. I wanted to be working for somebody who was so interested in their work that they were working late. So there were just a lot of reasons why I was excited about that job. But it is an apprenticeship. You don't have to go into editorial either. I mean, there are a lot of 
other career paths in publishing. And I talked to our director of recruiting about what people don't understand about the industry. And one of the things that she wished more people understood is that you don't just have to go in and be an editor. You can work in sales or marketing or publicity or contracts or subsidiary rights. There are lots of different ways to begin. And really, all that matters is that you're working for somebody who you think is invested in you and who will be an advocate on your behalf and also a really good teacher. Wonderful. That is such great advice, Jonathan. Do you remember how you got your first break? And did that break get offered to you or did you go out and find it? As I mentioned, I've been a newspaper reporter. So there was a reporter for one of the newspapers I worked with at the Providence Journal, Wayne Miller, and he was a star there. And I wrote to him when I first got to Random House and I said, if you ever have a book idea, let me know. So some time went by and he did have a book idea. He wrote a good proposal. It was submitted to me and my colleagues at Random House let me acquire it. I'd been there for about a year and a half at that point. So I waited until I had something good. And a year and a half when you're 25 can seem like a long time. I realize now that it wasn't that long, but that's from a different vantage point. So I am grateful that my colleagues at Random House actually let 26-year-old buy a book and that they gave me that latitude because they didn't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing you were a little stressed out. Well, actually, I was not stressed out at all because I'd been a newspaper reporter before working in publishing, and I found that to be much more stressful. Okay. Fair enough. So Jonathan, I'd like to flash back a little further to when you were at Brown and you were an American civilization major. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I had absolutely no idea how I would use that degree. And I don't think that was even on my mind. So what was your first job when you graduated? Well, I was working at the campus newspaper, the Brown Daily Herald, and that kind of felt like my, my major. I loved newspapers. I loved journalism. I loved writing and always was very interested in that. So from the Brown Daily Herald, I was able to get newspaper internships. In my sophomore year, I worked at the Birmingham News in Alabama. And my junior and senior years, I had internships at the Washington Post. So I was pretty clearly on a track to go into journalism or some form of writing. And that was really where my head was at. Got it. Jonathan, I try to ask all Time for Coffee guests the last two questions here. And the first of the two is, could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you floundered or failed in some way. There was a big screw up. Could you share with us what that was and more importantly, how you recovered and what lesson you learned in the process? The one that I remember the most vividly was I was 22 years old. It was 1986. And I was an intern at the Washington Post. I'd been there the previous summer writing for the style section. And it was an extraordinary experience uh, to be able to write profiles and feature stories and have lots of people read them. And I was invited back the next summer to work on the National Desk, which was a real step up and an incredible opportunity. I spent the summer there and it went pretty well. I even made the front page with a story. 
but I wasn't sure I wanted to go into journalism. I wasn't 100%. And there were some other reporters there at the time who were saying, you know, you can always be a reporter, go do other things. And I had notions of going out to Los Angeles and maybe working in the entertainment business. There were all kinds of writing I was interested in. I was interested in theater. I was interested in movies and TV. I was interested in everything. So I wasn't sure I wanted to stay at the Washington Post, which for a 22-year-old is a pretty great opportunity. And so I decided to leave at the end of the internship. They'd offered me an opportunity to stay on and work covering cops and courts in Arlington, Virginia. So I was in a bureau and I was just sort of in this stasis. They hadn't formally offered me a job. They were on that path to doing that, but I wasn't sure and there were no promises. I told them I was going to go and I got called into the managing editor's office and he said, I think you should reconsider. I was not sure what that actually meant. And I didn't have the guts to say, are you offering me a job? Because the reality is, if the managing editor of the Washington Post had offered me at the age of 22 a full-time job as a reporter at the Washington Post, I probably should have taken that. But I didn't have the guts to ask him. All he said was, I think you should reconsider, which meant that I should continue to work out in this Arlington Bureau covering cops and courts for an indefinite period of time with no clear track. He asked me to talk to the Metro editor who said, if you give me 10 years, I can make you David Broder, who was at the time the premier political reporter. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be David Broder. And 10 years seemed like an impossibly long time to me at the age of 26. So the whole thing just left me feeling a little bit confused. I left the Washington Post. And about three months later, I deeply regretted it. (laughs) because it was a great newspaper. I loved journalism and I was basically completely at sea. I wasn't sure what I was doing. And so I wrote back to the managing editor and said, I've made a mistake. Can I come back? And at that point, he said, well, you seem a little bit like a dilettante. Why don't you just keep in touch? So I went and I got a job at the Providence Journal and then I got a job at the Miami Herald. And I always wondered if I had just had the guts to ask for the job, whether I could have avoided all that. So that's felt like a period of struggle to me. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Final time for coffee question, Jonathan. If you could go back to Brown and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would follow curiosity to whatever extreme you can. The longer I do my work, the more I realize how essential curiosity is to everything. I think it drives us in active and subliminal ways. And that, for me, is what animates so much of our work in our lives. So I would say, listen to your curiosity and follow it deeply. Wonderful advice. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me today and with the Time for Coffee community. I learned a huge amount about the publishing industry that I didn't know, and I know that our listeners will as well. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. 